1: Our scripture passage for today comes from Romans chapter 8. Hear these words. So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the actions of the body, you will live. All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters, You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear. But you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. But if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. If we really suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm going to need a little participation participation this morning, okay? I'm warning you ahead of time. The choir's on it. They are always ready to participate of you have ever ridden a bicycle? Ooh. I didn't ask when, right? It could have been yesterday or it could have been 20 years ago, right? Some uh, Most of us have ridden a bicycle at some point in our lives. Now, when you learn to ride a bicycle, did someone give you a book and say, read how to ride this bicycle and then just go get on it and have fun? No. Hopefully not. If that happened to you, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> most of us had someone teach us how to ride a bicycle. Maybe we had one of those bikes with training wheels. And so we got on it, and so we got to practice pedaling without toppling over. And we had to practice kind of finding our center of balance and figuring out how to steer. And then eventually those training wheels came off, and we were free at last to ride. And what sometimes happens on a bicycle? You fall off. And maybe depending on the injury or the trauma, maybe that was the last time you ever rode a bicycle. But for most of us, especially if we were children, we got back up, dusted ourselves off, and got back on, right? To ride again. Sometimes in life, we learn by doing, We can read up on a subject, we can know all about it in our heads, but it's not until our bodies actually engage or we physically interact with that subject, we don't really know. If I, you know, when I asked you a question, how many of you had ever ridden a bicycle? I said, have you ridden a bicycle? That means you had to get on it. If I'd asked a different question, like, do you know how to ride a bicycle? You might be like, well, I know but that's not the same thing as actually writing it. You get where, where we're going today? All right. How many of you have ever moved away from home, settled in a new place, and had to make new friends? Maybe it was when you went away to college or when you had to move for a job. Intellectually, we know that it will be hard. But when you go through it, you go, oh yeah, this is really hard. How many of you have ever applied for a job and on the job description it said three to five years of work experience or some other number of years of work experience? What's that telling you? They don't want someone who's never worked before. They want somebody who has some sort of training, some sort of skills that can apply, that can be maybe related to the tasks that that particular job will be having. It's hard enough to learn a new job. So maybe to have some sort of skills as a foundation will help make the learning process a little easier. I was out sick a few weeks ago. And on my calendar, and in my head, I had it down that something was going to happen on Thursday. Well, Thursday comes, and I was texting with Vance because I was out. And he says, oh, that happened yesterday. Now, I've been out all—I was out sick all week. I was not there on Wednesday. But I was like— no, it didn't. It was happening today. He goes, Emily, I was here. <laughs> it happened yesterday. That story tells you a little bit about me and that I, you know, <clears throat> maybe a little bit of a control freak. Um, but it also illustrates that we can know something in our heads. We can even have it written down. But that doesn't mean it actually happened the way we thought it was going to. So in that text message, I said, You were right. I was wrong. And I think he said, like, mark this day down, like, hallelujah, it's a celebration. (laughs) Intellectually, we know that it will be hard to lose a loved one. Whether it's a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a child, it's hard. But when it happens, and you live through it, you know that grief deep down in your bones, in a way that's more real and heavy than just if you'd known it up here. We are in a sermon series about knowing God. And as United Methodists and as Wesleyan Christians, we believe that we can know God through many ways, but particularly a a way called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. This is four ways to know God, scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. And no offense to the Wesleyan scholars that came up with this quadrilateral. While I think it's helpful to think about these four different ways of knowing God, and putting them in boxes like that makes it seem like scripture is its own thing, and tradition is its own thing, and experience and reason are their own thing. Well, really it's a lot more permeable than that. We understand scripture through tradition and reason and experience. We understand our church tradition through scripture and experience and reason. They all work together to help us understand and to help us better know God. These four ways they work together. They're not in isolation. So last week, Pastor Vance preached about knowing God through tradition. And he shared a really great quote from Barbara Brown Taylor, and I'm bringing it back for us today. She says, there is no such thing as religion. There are only religious people who embody the scripts of their faiths as differently as dancers embody the steps of their dances. We have inherited a sacred pattern, a series of artful steps meant to lead us closer to God and each other. But until someone finds a partner and gives it a try, it is an idea and not a dance. Knowing God is like dancing with God. And I know that may make some of you uncomfortable if you don't like to dance. But knowing God is experiencing God. It's giving relationship with God a try. And so how do we do that? We do that through a series of practices, a series of experiences, if you will, to help us learn the steps of how to dance with God, how to live our lives in relationship with God, how to know God better and deeper over the course of our lives. You're here today on a Sunday morning. This Sunday morning worship service is an experience that we are sharing in together as we worship God together. It's also a practice. You had to get up and get dressed and get here. There's a lot of other places you could be, especially on Father's Day, and you're here, right? That's a practice to be able to help you know God and worship today. But we can also... Um, know God through experiences through some of these other ways that don't just involve 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. We can see and encounter God's grace at work in our lives. We can know God by understanding and acting upon faith in light of our own lives. It means growing in wisdom and maturity as a result of the relationships and situations in our lives. It's praying and reflecting on our own stories with other people. Experience, knowing God through experiences can be all of those things. You don't have to come to a particular building on a particular day at a particular time, although you can, and we were so glad that you did. But it can also be all of these different practices of paying attention to God in all aspects of our lives, any day of the week, any time of the day. Experience is closely related to reflection and self-awareness. We stop and we consider where and how have we seen God's grace at work in our lives. And sometimes it's really hard to see it in the moment, particularly if the moment is hard and challenging. But it's perhaps if we look back, we think back to other times that we've gone through difficulties in our lives. We can see how God was with us, how God showed up, how God strengthened us and encouraged us, and perhaps how God used other people to do those things. That's in looking back, we can see, oh, yeah, well, if God did that for me in the past, I'm going to trust and believe that God is going to do that in the present, and in the future, as well. As we live our lives in relationship with with God, as we're coming to know God more, hopefully, we are growing not only in our knowledge of God, but in our love of God. As we know God and as we love God, the Holy Spirit is at work within us, cultivating what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We experience God when we allow the fruit of the Spirit to grow in us. Perhaps we can see moments where, whoo, that was a challenge, and I had to be patient. And maybe we were patient in that moment. We can kind of give ourselves a little pat on the back. Ooh, yay, I was patient in this challenging moment. But really, it's like, wow, God— Thank you for cultivating that patience in me. It didn't just come from me, but it came from your spirit at work, in and among and through me. Sometimes we experience God through other people. <clears throat> As we live our lives and we share the good, the bad, and the ugly of our lives with each other, perhaps a friend or maybe even a stranger will share a word that we needed to hear at just the right time. And that word maybe turns our day around, changes our attitude and our perspective. That could be God working through that other person. We could be experiencing God through the love, through the words, through the meals, through the quiet presence of those who show up around us, who love us, and who share the love of God with us. As we experience life, we also experience our faith. We read scripture along with our experiences. United Methodist Pastor Morgan Guyton says, When we read the Bible, we bring our experience to it, whether we acknowledge this officially or not. There is no way to evade our own unique socialization that causes us to privilege certain aspects of whatever scriptures we read over others. Friends, we read and hear scripture as people living in the United States in the 21st century. We understand scripture based on our different life experiences, our education levels, our socioeconomic status, our race, our language, our abilities, our gender, marital status, our age, immigration status, sexuality, and the list goes on. How we read and understand scripture as people living in the United States right now is different from how people may read and understand scripture living in other countries because their experiences may be different from ours. Similarly, how we read scripture in the United States today is different from how people living in the United States read and understood Scripture a hundred years ago. Their experiences were different than what our experiences are now. Sometimes I think there's a, this idea that experience influences our reading and understanding of Scripture. Sometimes it's a little scary. Maybe it li- can make us a little afraid. What does that mean? How is that going to influence and perhaps, I don't know, somehow damage our understanding of Scripture? But I wonder, maybe instead of fear, we turn to wonder. I wonder if we can embrace our experiences and embrace how our experiences help us to understand Scripture. Certainly, my understanding of Scripture now as an adult is different than how I read and understood it as a child. And as I continue to live and as I continue to grow, I know that my experiences are gonna continue to help me read and understand and interpret scripture. Surely, we can also be open to the ways that other people's experiences can give us new perspective and new ideas about scripture that we had not previously considered. We're here in the United Methodist Church, and I'm a United Methodist pastor, and so I'm telling you about how United Methodists read scripture and understand God and seek to know God with our scripture and our reason and our tradition and our experiences. <clears throat> That's not how all other Christians know God. and. As a United Methodist pastor, you know what I say? Other people can read Scripture and try to understand and try to know God. And whatever ways they want to do that, that's fine. But as a United Methodist pastor, I'm saying that I'm reading Scripture through the lens of tradition and reason and experience. You know, for many years, women were not ordained as pastors. In the United Methodist Church or other Christian traditions. And yet I'm standing here before you as a woman that's ordained. How did that happen? Aren't there some scriptures in the Bible that say women shouldn't be preachers and shouldn't be talking to men? And there are. But for the United Methodist Church, understanding experience and allowing experience to help us know God says, you know what? Yes, there are some scripture verses in the Bible that talk about how women should not speak in church or how they should be silent, but we're going to read those and try to understand the context for how those scriptures were written and why those words were said and what did it mean for those particular communities to which that scripture was originally intended. And we're also going to look at the rest of the Bible and through on the Old Testament through the New Testament, we see women after women who are learning about God, who are seeking to know God who are leaders, God is using them to share God's love with the world, from Ruth to Esther, to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, and many more along the way. That's how we might, as United Methodists, use our reason and our tradition and our experience to look at Scripture and to say, hey, that's how women can become pastors. In this church. But I'm also gonna tell you about experience. Growing up in a United Methodist church, I was born a United Methodist and like fourth generation United Methodist. It's just what my people do, I guess. But my parents, when they moved back to Florida, they had a choice about where to go to church. Should they go back to the United Methodist church that my dad grew up in and that my grandmother was a member of? Or should they look at other churches? And I think they did look at other churches. But for both of them, they wanted to be in a church where if they were to have a child, a boy or a girl, that the church would be open to leadership for both men and women, boys and girls. That their children would see... um, people of all genders and races and abilities serving as leaders in the church. And that wasn't the case for other churches. And so that's how my parents landed on the United Methodist Church. And to this day, my home church still has not yet had a woman pastor. They've only had white male pastors for some reason. Because um, that also happens. And, but even though there wasn't a woman pastor, there were woman leaders. They chaired committees. And they served as Sunday school teachers. And I had women uh, serving as my Sunday school teachers and as my VBS leaders. And I had women investing in me and helping to nurture my gifts. And when I was experiencing a call to ministry, it was to some of those same women that I returned to. To say, hey, I think God might be calling me to the ministry. What should I do? And so it was both men and women who nurtured God's gifts in me who helped me to be able to respond to God's call and to become the person that I am today and the pastor that I am today. As a United Methodist pastor, other churches are going to read and interpret Scripture and they're going to do what they're called to do. But as for me, as a United Methodist pastor serving this church, I want to understand God. I want to know God. I want to love God in ways that enable and allow all people, regardless of the labels that we use, to describe ourselves or to label each other. I want to pastor in such a way and know God in such a way that all people can come to seek and love God and to love and serve people. That all people can come and experience God's amazing grace. That all people can come and experience God calling them whether that's to ordain ministry or to whatever that may be. I want to serve as a pastor in a church that enables all people to serve and to respond to God's call, whatever that may be. So we're going to let other people do them, and we're going to do us. How does that sound? Okay. In our Wesleyan United Methodist tradition, we look to our founder, John Wesley for our theological background and for kind of the structure of our church. John Wesley was an Anglican priest, and he served as a priest. He was preaching, and he was teaching, and he was Oxford educated, and he was going around, and he was celebrating communion, and he was doing the other uh, functions of of a priest, but something was missing. He knew God really well in his head, but he didn't know God in his heart. And so a lot of what he did, both as a priest and as a follower of Jesus, a lot of the ways that he lived his life and practiced his faith, it was out of fear. It was trying to like, if I do all these good things, then surely God will like reward me. Surely God will save me. Surely God will take care of me. But it was really about what all he was doing as opposed to what God was doing. And so on a night in 1738, John Leslie writes in his journal... In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in his heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death." John Wesley knew scripture. He knew God with his head. He was familiar with Romans 8. But on this particular evening, he received God's spirit when his heart was strangely warmed. And the spirit showed him that he was adopted as God's child. Some, not all, of his fear and anxiety went away. That night, but he continued to see he that night was a turning point for him. He saw that he was a beloved child of God, adopted by God. He had experienced the love of God in his heart, and it went along with what he knew of God in his head. Wesley later writes the assurance of faith is the experience of the children of God, the experience not of two or three, not of a few but of a great multitude, which no man can number. It has been confirmed both in this and in all ages by a cloud of living and dying witnesses. It is confirmed by your experience and mine. The spirit itself bore witness to my spirit that I was a child of God. John Wesley's experience was personal and unique to him. And yet he is not the only person to have had an experience with God. God shows up in all sorts of ways to all sorts of people to convey God's love for us. And so some of us gathered here today may have had experiences in our lives where we have felt God's love deep in our hearts. And it was personal, and it was meaningful, and perhaps life-changing for us. And some of us may not have ever had those experiences. And both are okay. Beyond the United Methodist tradition, the Christian tradition offers us a model for how we might practice experiencing God in our daily lives. St. Ignatius taught us about paying attention to consolation and desolation. Consolation is the interior movement of the heart that gives a deep sense of life-giving connection with God, others, and my most authentic self and God. It is the sense that all is right with the world, that I'm free to be given over to God and to love, even in moments of pain and crisis. Conversely, desolation is the loss of a sense of God's presence. I feel out of touch with God, with others, and with my most authentic self. It is the experience of being off-center, full of turmoil, confusion, and maybe even rebellion. Paying attention to feelings of consolation and desolation help us to pay attention to God. Where do we sense God in our lives? Where do we sense God at work in our lives or in the world around us? Practicing consolation and desolation helps us to engage with this idea of experiencing God. It gives us a tangible, practical way to try to know God through our experiences, through our daily lives. Ruth Haley Barton says, experiences of consolation and desolation are not right or wrong, they just are. They need not be particularly momentous. In fact, they may seem relatively inconsequential until we learn to pay attention and to listen for what they have to tell us. God's will for us is generally for us to do more of that, which gives us life, and to turn away from those things that drain life from us and debilitate us. We can experience God, we can know God. By paying attention to the moments where we feel connected to God, connected to other people, Connected to that abundant life that God has for us. You and I, we are children of God. We are heirs of Christ. And maybe we know this in our heads. But by practicing consolation and noticing those moments of desolation, we may be able to cultivate that knowing God in our hearts. Let us pray together. Gracious and loving God, you love us, and you want to know us. And in return, you want us to know you. God give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds and hearts full of curiosity and wonder, and the willingness to pay attention to how you are at work in us and in the world around us. God, help us to both increase our faith and to increase our knowledge of you in our heads and in our hearts. And may this knowledge of you change us, change how we live and how we love in the world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.